I have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Give us some men who know the truth! And who will declare the truth? And who will stand with Athanasius and Polycarp and Calvin and Luther and Whitfield and Edwards? And who will declare from the housetops that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? The message you're about to listen to is an expository sermon I gave at Chapel of the North Hills Church on February 13th, and I'm preaching on 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-13, through 13. and this sermon was given prior to Dr. Mark Armitage's arrival in El Paso, where he did dinosaur bone labs at this church with about 97 students, where they saw uh, blood clots, nerves, and osteocytes in dinosaur bones, and he also gave a presentation at this church on this same topic. I apologize that the sound quality isn't that great, but I do believe if you turn it up and engage with the truth found in God's Word in 2 Peter chapter 3, you will be blessed. Thanks for listening. So if you were playing in the Super Bowl today and you knew your team was going to win, would that change how you played? You absolutely knew who's gonna your team was gonna win. I, Say you're playing for the Bengals, so I think it's the Bengals versus the Rams, correct? And so you're playing for the Bengals, and you absolutely knew, you, uh, you had somehow you had knowledge that you're going to win. Would that change? Would you be kind of lazy on the field, or would you just play your heart out? You think about that, because it's kind of similar when we think about, we know the ending. We know that God wins in the end. We don't know how all the details of how it's all going to work out. We know there's trials and tribulations, right? But we know that the Lord Jesus wins. He is sovereign over all of history, correct? Amen. Amen. That's what scripture affirms. And, and I think if that's true, what sort of lives ought we to live? Well, 2 Peter 3 makes that real clear and unpacks that. And I, I'm, as, as a guest um, preacher today, I'm grateful to be here with you. Pastor Dan invited me here. And, and uh, I have a passion for the Word of God and for others to know why it's total truth for all of reality. And uh, I'm going to share this with you, uh, this passage, because there's so much in here that, that points to the supremacy of Christ and why we could stir up our minds around the truth of God's Word, and that should eagerly lead us to lead holy lives in the light of the day of God that is coming near approaching. So let's begin in 2 Peter, but as we before we dive in here, it's important to kind of note that we this is the second follow-up letter, and we should be familiar as there's a first Peter as well. And the apostle Peter, he wrote that letter to Christians who were were struggling with external pressures. Um, theologian Ken Gentry talks about how really first Peter is kind of like the external pressures, and second Peter is like the internal pressures. Because First Peter, he's talking about the, the persecution that may come. And he talks about, hey, stay faithful. Be ready to always give a defense for the hope that you have within you. And then we see in Second Peter, it's, it's probably written pretty close to when Peter was uh, killed under Emperor Nero in the 60s. And it would, 
be uh, understood to be uh, with the intention of being read widely among the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey area. And, and so really he kind of lays out, this is the gospel, persevere in it, flee false teaching. And then he has this, this chapter 3 that's, that's really unpacking that, hey, this is going to result in holy lives because we can trust in the promises of the Lord Jesus. And this section is going to be talking about the last days. And even Acts 2 talks about the last days. And sometimes that can get complicated in our understanding, perhaps. But really, to think of the last days, a lot of people would say it's just related to the time of Jesus' inaugurating of the kingdom. It's not fully consummated yet, but it's kind of the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is reigning, and he is taking all things under subjection to him, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. And the, the kingdom is spreading like a mustard seed. It continues to spread. But the last days, we, we are in the last days in that um, to be, we're in the Christian era. But we have mockers in the last day. This chapter is going to talk about that. And so we'll start here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Well, I want to stop here real quick because, first of all, I say we want our mind stirred up. And you go, well, okay, what is he saying next? It's important we focus on this because what does it mean to stir up a sincere mind? Well, we think of even the Greek in there, this to stir up, it's kind of like thinking like, let's awaken your mind. It's like, you slept in late, and you're like, oh, wow, i got to go. If you've ever slept in late, I'm sure none of you have done that except for me. But if you've slept in late, you realize you are thinking very clearly, and you have a sense of urgency, right? I think we, when we think of a stir up your mind, that's something that those of us who are in Christ, we've been given the mind of Christ, and we have to daily renew our mind. And we think of this earlier in this book here, Second Peter, he said in chapter 2, verse 13, I think you're right, as long as I am in this body, to stir up, to stir you up by way of reminding. And, and so he, he uses this phraseology a lot. And he, he mentioned that right after mentioning the qualities of a believer. And he's saying, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. And we even see that going back in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, prepare your minds for action. When you think about preparing your minds for action, well, that, that's real clearly not like a, just a walk in the park. It's that we're in a spiritual battle. The day of God is fast approaching. And he says later in 1 Peter 1.13, be sober-minded. You know, the idea of soberness is not just not, not being drunk. It's having um, your mind fully devoted to the Lord, being filled with the Spirit. And that's what he, the contrast is in Ephesians is, don't be drunk on wine that makes you debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Our mind is under the controlling influence of the Spirit in our lives and how we think about everything. And he says in 1 Peter 1 13, he goes on and says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, the, what he's talking about there, the revelation, he's, he's not talking about we're going to get extra books in the Bible, he's talking about the arrival, the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And he, we think about why would we need to be stirred up? Why would we need to be reminded? Sometimes we, we may think, oh, 
Well, I don't need to hear that again. I've, come, I've already learned that. I've graduated past this, this basic um, doctrine of God, basic theology, basic study of God. But the thing is, we never outgrow the gospel as believers. We always are reminded of that. The gospel saves us. The gospel grows us. As we grow more, and it's by God's grace alone that I'm saved, and by God's grace, I am what I am. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians, by his grace, I will be sanctified. I will grow more into the image of Christ. And even Romans 12, 2 says, we must daily renew our minds and not be conformed to the pattern of this world. So when you think of when you, if you ever had a Windows Explorer, it seems like that's the slowest one. Um, it always, you have to renew the page a lot because it just gets really slow and there's like bugs on there. It's so much like how we have to renew our minds around the word of God and what is true. And so all, all of us are prone to, to kind of drift off of thinking on what is pure and right and true and holy, as Philippians 4 says, right? And, and that's why we have to daily do this. And Romans 12, 2 makes that clear. Even Colossians 2, 8 says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. And some versions have here empty philosophy and empty deception. It would be a good translation. And it says, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So it's not that he's like, all philosophy is bad and, and study your Bible. Philosophy, good philosophy, is built off of a biblical worldview. Philosophy is how we understand, um, how we know what we know, how we make sense of reality. Everyone has a philosophy or a worldview, the lens through which you see all of reality. But if your lens that you put on, it's, it's seeing reality distorted, then you're not seeing things how you ought to. And it says here, not according to Christ, according to the empty views, empty deception. And so if you think of, we need to stir our minds around what is true and build every thought, every thought around the supremacy of Christ. We need to take every thought captive. And we think about, really it's folly, unbelief. Scripture actually lays out, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Romans 1 says people willfully suppress the truth so they can practice unrighteousness. It's kind of like if I had a beach ball and you're in a swimming pool and you want to push it down, right? What happens? Helps back up. That's, that's the folly of, of unbelief is we try to suppress belief. But we, we live in God's world, so it's going to hit us back in the face. We'll run into the reality that there is objective right and wrong. There is truth. To deny truth is a truth claim. To say there is no truth, right? And that, so we know inherently, being made in the image of God, we know that there is absolute truth. There is, it is absolutely wrong to kill innocent children in the womb. We know these things are wrong. It's self-evident. We know that all humans are made in the image of God. Before Christ, we're all spiritually blind. And so there's spiritual blindness that makes people push the beach ball down to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So it's only by God's grace that our eyes are open, right? We can't say at the end of the day, like, it's because I, I'm so much more smarter than I'm saved or I, I have this figured out. It's by God's grace that any of us, our eyes are open, right? And so we have, there, there's no boasting that any of us can even bring to the table. The reason you or I are saved is because God's initiative and opening our eyes 
and to respond to the gospel and place our trust in Christ. And Paul even says, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's all a gift. First Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God. And Ephesians 4 talks about the futility of thinking before we came to Christ. Ephesians 4, 17. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and, sep- and their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to hardening of their hearts. So we come back to stirring of the mind. Well, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, it says, if you'll turn there with me, I'll, I'll quote it here directly. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Since we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So there's strongholds of false ideas about reality. They distort how we view things. And so we're thinking wrongly about how humans got here. This weekend, there was what we call Darwin Day. It's a false view of reality of how humans got here that denies the flood, which we'll talk about, that denies God's creation as laid out in Genesis. And it's it's a stronghold. It's, it's a lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. It's we're to take captive every thought. When you think about it, if that's true, every thought, it means how we think about every subject, Right? To stir us up, how we think about even science, how we think about history, how we think about studying and even accounting or everything, everything we're doing, all fields of knowledge are meant to lead us to worship our Lord Jesus, right? Like that's the end goal is when I study history is to lead me to the reminder that Jesus is the Lord of history. When I study science, it reminds me that Jesus is the creator and he act, has acted in history. And, and Jesus says that you search the scriptures, you think that you may have life, but you didn't come to me. And you see, the goal of learning is to worship the Lord Jesus, not just to fill our heads. The goal of learning is a means to worship him. And we think of all of this, the goal of what we call in 1 Peter 3.15, Christian apologetics. It comes from the Greek word to give a defense or to give a reason. The goal of Christian apologetics, Greg Bonson says, is to see that Jesus Christ is worshipped. That's the ultimate goal. Yes, it involves answering objections and making the case for why it's true. But it means that we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as Luke 10, 27 says. So we're setting apart the Christ, the Lord Jesus, as holy. And then we're gonna we're gonna approach every subject to say to show how this points to him. And so this is so important because when we understand and we know the truth. What does Jesus say about the truth? He says, the truth will set you free. It's not your feelings will set you free. Your experience will set you free. Our experience may conform to the truth. Yes, absolutely. But the truth of the word of the living God, of who Jesus is and what he has done in history, and his perfect life, and his death on our behalf, and his resurrection. The truth of who he is, it sets us free. So we should love the Lord. Love the Lord Jesus. We should love the truth. Christians 
You know, before the Scopes trial, the Monkey Scopes trial in 1925 in Tennessee, Christians used to be the thought leaders, intellectual thought leaders in America. There was a shift at that point because we didn't take captive every thought, because there was a portrayal that Christians were anti-intellectual. We didn't want to use their mind to think through every subject. If it's not true, because the Lord Jesus created everything, and he, every subject revolves around him. And so when we, we stir up our mind, this is all that I need, is we're loving the Lord Jesus with all of our mind, soul, strength, and we're taking captive every thought. So as we think first on this point here, is, is, we're, we're, are we, is your mind stirred up by the word of God? Because when you think about it, if you're honest, what has been stirring your mind this week? If it's not stirring you to greater affection and love and worship the Lord Jesus, then it's not the word of God that's stirring you up, right? When you think, well, I feel like my passion for seeing the lost come to Christ is growing cold. I feel like my passion for praying for others to know the Lord and, and, and that the Lord would comfort them. Stop back, step back and think, how much time are you spending in the word? How much, how much time are you spending meditating on the word of God? Psalms 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure by meditating on your word? He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. So, where, what is stirring is the first question as we think through here in Second Peter. Now, as we go through this, this next couple, these next couple of verses, I want you to think about when Jesus says to the teachers of the law, Pharisees, in Matthew 22, 29, he says, you are for two reasons. Now, when you think of these two reasons, if, if you haven't read the context, you say, Jesus is going to say two reasons that people are wrong in their thinking today. Like, what would you think off the top of your head? What are the two reasons people, the two biggest reasons they're thinking is wrong today? We could give many reasons, right? Like, well, because they have issues here. And I, when I do street evangelism, I ask people, what's the greatest problem of humanity? And they'll say greed, envy, pride. And those are true. I say it flows out of a sinful heart and rebellion of God. And Jesus says here, it's, they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And it's so connected to 2 Peter, uh, chapter 3 here. Because all the problems we have is that people don't know the word of God, and they don't know the power of God. And that's, of course, related to a sinful heart that wants to reject that God has spoken, God has acted in history. Because the word of God, this is not just spiritual truths, but not really historically true. It's historically true, and it's meaningful because it's historically true. The resurrection was a real resurrection, right? It's not just a, a non-physical body resurrection. Jesus literally conquered death, amen? That gives us comfort. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are to be pity of all men. So there is hope because it is grounded in history, the word of God. So this is, this is what Peter says in here. We didn't follow cleverly invented stories. He says earlier in the book of 2 Peter, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Talking about when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus unveiled his glory. He's talking about this is eyewitness testimony we're talking about here. And so not only are we stirred by the truth of God's word, but we, we look to the truth of his word and why it's true. And we look, let's read 2 Peter 2, 2 through 7 now. Or 2 Peter 3, excuse me. 
In both of them, I'm stirring up your sins to your mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see here, he, he, he first lays out, well, we can stir up our mind, we stir up our mind, not just thinking about, like, let's just think vaguely about God, let's focus clearly on, he's, he mentions, we have fulfilled prophecy in Scripture. I uh, talked with a student earlier this week, and I showed him how Isaiah 53 was written before Jesus, and the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrate that it was written before Jesus. They're dated around uh, 150 to 200 BC. And so I took him Isaiah 53, talking about how Jesus would die and pointing to his resurrection. He would die with criminals. How would he be buried? And it was incredible. He was reading it. And he's like, this really was written before Jesus. And I said, yes. What we have is a, is a faith built up of good historical reasons. And he's like, we look to the truth of God's word. We have fulfilled prophecy. And 1 Peter 1.20 says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And see, all of this points to Jesus. All scripture, all history points to Jesus. And we mentioned there's the eyewitness testimony, the fulfilled prophecy, eyewitness testimony. And then we have this section here that talks about they willfully forget that the world, that God created the world, and then the world was flooded. And that's kind of interesting, because when we think about, well, okay, people don't know the scriptures, they don't know the power of God. What does that translate to? They deny creation, and they deny the flood. And that's connected with the reason they're denying the return of Jesus. And they're going, well, God's not going to judge things. Everything's going to go on as it always has, right? It's kind of the assumption that God is indifferent to what's going on in our life. God doesn't judge evil. It, it, he's just created the world, wound it up, and left it to go on its own. And perhaps during Noah's day, people thought that way. There's, there was a lot of wickedness there. It was very evil time. And people must have thought, hey, well, you know, it's going to go on as it always has. And there's a, a popular name is for that in some science circles called uniformitarianism, where the present is the key to the past. The present rate you've seen of things is the way that things will always be. Sometimes that, particularly that's applied to the rates of deposition and erosion um, with uh, geology. And they go, the present rates will always be the same. And the key thing is it's ignoring a catastrophe that happened in the past, right? It's ignoring that the past is the key to the present. Meaning, if there was a global flood, then a large majority of the rock layers could have been laid down by the global flood. And that could explain a lot of things in, in world history. 
Well, one, it explains why do you have so many flood legends? And those were some of the pictures I was going to show on the slides here for you guys. But this, before I get to some of those, I want to contrast it. Uniformitarianism, the present is the key. Everything will continue on uniformitarianism versus catastrophism. It is kind of like this, this view that's really rejecting that God has acted in history. God's going to judge sin. And it really comes down to, well, which account of history is even true? It comes down to the authority of God's word itself, right? Because if we're saying this is a global event, just like the return of Jesus is a global event. So if he's reasoning by analogy to say the flood would be local, but the return of Jesus is global, it would be a weird analogy. He's saying global flood, global return of Jesus, global judgment as well. But we have to see here that it also deals with when did death, suffering, and evil enter the world? Because if we have millions of fossils before our need, then death, evil, and suffering is not the result of sin, as Paul says in Romans 5.12. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death to all. And so we see that this, this is a, an issue of the authority of God's word and foundational. But biblically, Death, evil, and suffering must be the result of the fall, not before. And this is connected with 2 Peter 3 because we're talking about, is the majority of the fossil record connected with the flood? If it is, then we, we can really piece together history well, and we can understand it um, clearly. And this is a foundational truth. Yes, people like to debate on this, and you, know, you may not be settled on it, and of course, you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But this is foundational of when did death enter? It's a, it's a matter of this earthly point, truth, earthly truth, pointing others to God. And we go, okay, well, if there truly was a flood, and I'll use these I use on my zoo tours when I take students to the zoo, we should expect certain things. Well, we do. The majority of the fossils are marine fossils, and we find them all around uh, many mountains, and it's you can see that. Uh, I had some slides. We find we find the majority of those around many continents. And you go, okay, granted, maybe maybe that works. Now we find many dinosaurs in suffocating positions, and we call in the death pose as well. And it's quite fascinating what we, we see. And I'll go I just highlight some of these briefly. We find um, some fossils that they were buried while giving birth. It had to be, it was a rapid and catastrophic process. Um, we see many of these fossils uh, very like that. We see dinosaur graveyards, many of them. And now here's, here's the, the exciting part. We think about um, dinosaurs and uh, flood fossils. I'm gonna show you something that's exciting. You guys will actually have an opportunity to participate in some next week um, and look at some of these fossils yourself if you would like. Um, we finding, we're finding blood, uh, blood tissue, blood clots, um, soft tissue, and dinosaur bones. And you guys will have next week Dr. Mark Armitage will speak here briefly in the service, and he'll be doing dinosaur bone labs here um, during the week with students. So these, these blood clots, these soft tissue, can't last for of years, and we're saying this is a huge indicator, especially blood clots, that kind of happens through drowning. We're finding that routinely, Dr. Armitage will share that some next Sunday, and we'll be giving several presentations during the week. And we're finding these 
all around. And we're seeing flood legends. I'm going to show you guys. I think I have it in here. Uh, we're finding uh, flood legends all around the world. And the word, the Chinese pictograph for a boat is a combination of the vessel, ape, and people. And it's about 4,000-year-old Chinese pictograph. So there's echoes of this all throughout world history of these flood legends, um, of the flood events. We have the same um, sandstone layer in the Grand Canyon, also in Israel, the Nubian sandstone. We're talking about transcontinental layers being laid down. And so we think about this is incredible. We're, we're seeing so much evidence of the flood, but yet people are rejecting the return of Jesus. You go, why does the flood matter? The flood is about the gospel. God judges sin. He rescues sinners. And he's going to judge the earth again. That's what it just said in Second Peter. And so when I go out in, in evangelism, I tell people, we're looking at these soft tissue dinosaur bones. It's not just like, oh, just well, look at this. It's cool. This is, this is about the gospel. God's judged the entire earth. And these dinosaurs died in this flood. And this is pointing to God's coming judgment as well. And he wants to rescue sinners. What did Jesus say about himself in, in the Gospels? He's the door. He's the door. Anyone who comes to him will, will find pasture, will find salvation. Who closed the door on the ark? God did. There was room for more people, certainly, by the dimensions. There's good, we can reason that there was more room. And one day the door of salvation will be closed for the greater ark of salvation, the Lord Jesus. And so we think of this application of we're stirred up to remind, be reminded of the truth of God's word. So I, want to, I want to really invite you guys next Sunday afternoon. We invited a lot of the neighborhood yesterday um, to come to uh, Dr. Armitage's presentation. Because there's a greater goal in sharing with people about the flood. It's that they would trust in the Lord Jesus and trust in his word. So I have um, some flyers that I will pass out to you guys um, after service. If you want to invite some of your friends, it'll be I think, in this room or the fellowship hall. But let's, I'll, I'll give those to you guys later. But let's close here when we look at 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. It says, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, clearly here, he's talking about how God is sovereign over all of time and history, right? Now, sometimes people want to get hung up on, well, does this mean like maybe the days of creation aren't actually days? He's not talking about creation here. He's talking about um, how God is sovereign over history, and he's long-suffering and delaying so that more people may repent. Um, so we can't interpret those back the days of Genesis, which Exodus 20.11 says, in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth. Here he's talking about, from God's perspective, his delay of his return is due to his justice and mercy that it will be prolonged so that more people will come to saving faith. I think that's a clear takeaway as we understand here. And it's also not affirming that everyone's going to be saved, because just earlier we were talking about the destruction of false teachers. 
So God will save his people. This is a clear message you understand. God will save his people. He will save it in the time will be perfect, just, and right. Abraham said, surely the judge of the universe will do right. And we know that's true. God is good in all of his ways. And so when the return of Jesus happens, whenever the Lord has determined ordained it to happen, it'll be exactly the right time. It won't be, oh, that was unjust. He should have waited another year. And so we, we also clearly see from here, when it talks about like, like a thief, it, history is headed to a specific point. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. So it will be kind of a surprise in that sense, right? And that kind of leads to a, an expectation, right? We, we should have an eager expectation. We don't know when. I mean, I kind of think of when I was growing up, uh, we would have this running joke of, we're supposed to clean the room. Our parents told us to clean our room. They're about to come home. And so we're like, well, let's, let's look busy. Like we were working the whole time and they see us working. Well, you know, if we're honest, we know we weren't. We were being lazy before. But we think of, if we when we love the Lord Jesus, we, we don't want to just try to just to scramble, not out of a genuine, consistent love for us. We want to we walk with the integrity and the pursuit of, God, I don't know when you're coming, but I have eager anticipation for that day. And I'm going to live with that. And then we think of, yes, it's going to be a global catastrophic judgment for those who are not in Christ. But this is a day we look forward to in the day of God. And some people like to say, is there a distinction here between the day of the Lord, talking about the day of judgment? In the Old Testament, it makes that a lot. But the day of God seems here to be referring to the hopeful expectation that believers have of being with the Lord Jesus in all of eternity. And you think of this interesting section here. The works that are done on it will be exposed. I mean, that, that kind of humbles us, right? Like, well, none of us are without sin. And we take comfort that we run to the refuge of Jesus that covers our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive all sins, First John says. But we see here in 1 John 2.28, it says, Now, dear children, continue in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So if we're talking about believers that could be have some sense of, man, I, I, I should have surrendered my life more. Well, you think about that. If we're thinking in light of eternity, would we ever go, wow, I wish I had held back more when I think of the Lord Jesus in, in surrendering my life? We're never going to regret surrendering any part of our life to the Lord Jesus. Our thoughts, our time, our money, our investments, our relationships. If, in light of eternity, we're never going to be like, yeah, I regretted that. I shouldn't have invested in eternity. Because everything we invest in, in eternity is, is not going to fade or perish. It's an eternal investment, right? And so there is a sense, I think, even as believers, where we, we will be persevered, preserved and persevered to the end. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. But that 1 John 2.28 and talking about those things that, that, don't, that, are, that don't have true value, that don't have true eternal value. Think of like 1 Corinthians 3, it talks about uh, those things that didn't that are kind of like straw, Paul says. They'll be burned up and things will be shown for what it is. So our, our discipleship and our family, our discipleship of the next generation, were we truly investing them to know the word of God and to make disciples, to make disciples, as 2 Timothy 2 says, invest in faithful men to teach others? 
going from generation to generation, it'll be shown for what it is in eternity. Now, we'll, we can still be saved, but all these things that are, that are worthless will be shown for what it is. So that, that kind of prods us to, to walk forward and pursue the Lord. Go, you know what, Lord, I need to throw off everything that entangles, as Hebrews 12 says. Throw off everything that entangles and run the race set before you. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, right? Amen. And so we start our minds around the truth of God's word, and we eagerly live holy lives in light of the day of God. So let's read verse 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I love that verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Some people say it kind of sounds like a question, but also kind of sounds like a well, of course, what kind of life should you be? Well, a life of holiness and godliness. Uh, I like what uh, Pastor John McCarthy says, holiness, it, this clearly seems to be referring to the way Christians should live their life. They're separate from sin. We, we don't try to become like the world to win the world. We show the world that there is treasure in Christ. We live holy and separate lives because we find our joy in Christ, not in the approval of men. Our joy is in, in the treasure of knowing the Lord Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. But not to live is the world's approval. To live is to know Christ and to make him known. He says holiness and then godliness. And Pastor MacArthur also said that seems to refer to the spirit of reverence, which should permeate a Christian's attitude, which rules their heart. We think of something ruling our heart, it kind of dominates our thinking. You think of those things that your mind tends to stray towards. That may be the thing that is dominating your heart and your mind and is stirring your affections. And when you notice that, you know, we don't have to condemn ourselves. There's no condemnation for those in Christ, but we can we can quickly quickly remind ourselves, you know, I need to hide God's word in my heart and renew my mind on what I know is true. That all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and, and I can cast all my anxiety on you. And, and so we think of too this is this idea of reflecting these right attitudes. If we're in Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone. We were formerly enemies of God. Now we've been reconciled to God. Like what, what more beautiful message is there than that gospel message that we can be a new creation in Christ, where where can you think of a story where the hero dies for the villain? For the gospel, right? And, and so we have, in verse 12, he says, there's a waiting and a hastening of the coming of the day of the Lord. Well, I think this is this is a, a, a hastening. Um, the original Greek there kind of almost refers to like an eager expectation, right? It, it's a waiting and hastening, and God has ordained the ends and the means through prayer, supplication, evangelism, and those are the means until he returns that the message of the gospel will get out. And so we have this, this hopeful waiting that fuels obedience, that fuels evangelism, that fuels engaging with others and trusting the Lord and praying. 
Because of, what did I say at the beginning? If you know the end, you know that you're going to win the game in the Super Bowl. How will that affect how you'll live? What kind of lives are we to live? If we know in the end the Lord Jesus wins, we should have bold and eager and anticipating lives now, right? It just, I, don't, I don't see anywhere in the scriptures like saying, shrink back and don't engage with the world. It's saying, be hopeful. Because, why? Because we stirred your minds back up, look at these promises. All the promises of God have been fulfilled. Psalms 119, 160 says, the entirety of God's word is true. And we know that. Historically, it's been shown over and over. If that's true, why would we not trust the promise of the Lord Jesus that he's going to return? He's going to return. There will be a global judgment, this time not with water, but with fire. So we live according to the promises of God and not our, our daily circumstances. And you see here, I love how it says here in uh, verse 13, we're waiting for this holy city where righteousness dwells. You know, one of the things I'm looking forward to the most in heaven is no more sin, being with Jesus, and, and being with, with you guys, and being perfect relationship. And what a beautiful thing that is. So we, we're not just, just trying to flee hell. We're fleeing towards the holy city of righteousness that God is, is spreading through his, his kingdom seed, the mustard seed kingdoms growing in the body of Christ now. It'll be consummated in the return of Jesus. And we'll end here at verse 14. Seek, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So, we think of, if we're going to be diligent, we're going to be intentional in our walk with Christ, right? We're going to be diligent that we're going to be found by him without spot or blemish. We go, okay, well, are you saying that that we have to work to save ourselves. No, I'm not. We're saved by grace. It's all a gift that we don't deserve. But we, we see scripture as an interpret scripture. We see later where 1 John 3, 2 3 says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we'll, we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we are, there's this Latin phrase that I love. It's called, it says, simul justus et equator. It means simultaneously just and sinner. We are just before God. We're declared righteous by faith alone. We are given the righteousness of Christ. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Yet we are a sinner. And yet we have this growth in Christ. And we want to be diligent as says in 1 John, as I mentioned earlier, 2.28, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And you think of this, this section saying, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. I don't think that's just thrown in there. Nothing in God's word is just thrown in there as an afterthought. God moves through the authors to inspire every job and tittle what they wrote. And, and I think here we're thinking of, you should think of Philippians 4. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. This is the kind of peace. We are right with God. 
we're not only right with God, but we're trusting in him, we're growing in that trust, that it guards our minds and hearts. And there's a peace in our understanding and our trust in him. So, we must stir up our minds around the truth of God's word so that we eagerly live holy lives in light of the day of God. I, don't, I can never assume, I don't know if there's anyone here who does not know the Lord Jesus. If that's where you're at, I urge you to flee to Christ, to put your faith in Christ. He lived a life of perfection that you could never live. And you died the death that you deserve, that I deserve, on your behalf to pay for the penalty for your sin. Because God is good and just. And just like God judged sin in the ark, God calls you to put your faith in him, the ark of salvation, Jesus. You will have life to be a new creation. And I encourage you, all believers here, that you would live eagerly in hope of the day of the Lord. We'll close with a prayer, and I believe we have the offertory after this. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your gospel. We thank you for your word that we can see. God, that your word stirs our thinking, it stirs our mind um, towards greater affection to you. God, that we can we can love you not just with our heart, but we can love you with our heart, our mind and our strength. God, I pray that we would love you with, with all that we are. God, some of us, we, we have things that we we need to lay down. We, we need to throw off those things that are hindering us. God, I pray that we'd be stirred to look to you and look to the promises in your word. That we would focus on and meditate on your word. That we would live holy lives in eager expectation. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has not accepted the free gift of salvation in Christ Jesus, that they would cry out now in their heart, Lord, they would turn to the sin of themselves and put their trust in you, that you are Lord and Savior. God, we thank you that you are willing to save and never turn away any who comes to you in faith. God, we, we praise you and we worship you. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray.